This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. give us amazing movies, cartoons, and TV shows. It gave us generally amazing commercials. And this is going to be a look back on what I think are the 10 best TV commercials of the decade. So before we start, if you're new here, welcome. Thanks for coming on out. If you're an old timer, I'm glad to have you around again. And this is an interesting topic because I like the combination of, you know, marketing commerce, but also the cultural impact that some of these commercials had in our lives. So before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. Okay, here we go. I can't remember the last commercial that made an impact on me. I think it's because I don't really watch commercials anymore. I rarely watch cable TV, and if I do, it's either on demand or DVR'd. The only thing I usually watch live is sports, and often I'll start the game late as I'm able to forward through the commercials. This is a tough time for advertisers, as it's become more difficult to get their messages in front of an audience. In the 1980s, it was easy. With only three networks, television is all you had to focus on. There were print ads, and but the chance was that the majority of the public would see your television commercial. Today, advertisers aren't even sure where to go for people to see their ads. Do you stick to TV, online? Do you try to crack into social media or streaming services, even though the biggest one of them all, Netflix, doesn't have any ads? Back in the 80s, there was no worry about this, and you could primarily focus on TV. I think this is why some of the most iconic ads of all time came out of this decade. Since there were really no other forms of entertainment in the home, TV was all we had, and that meant there was a good chance many people would see your ad. We got some real groundbreaking entertaining and culturally significant TV commercials in the 80s. And this is going to be my best attempt to take into all those factors to narrow down my top 10. So I won't explain each commercial first. I'll just play it and then we'll get right into it. Okay, here we go. Number 10. I'd like to meet you, but I'll bet you're hoping for a hunk. And all I've got to offer is sensitivity, intelligence, and charm. I'm drinking milk, though. And for the next couple seasons, I'll be working out. Milk's about the best thing I can drink right now to help me build strong arms, powerful legs, and a broad chest. And when all my work is done, will you love me just for my body? I can live with that. Milk, it does a body good. I don't know about you, but this was a very significant commercial to me growing up in the 80s. Despite all the issues that can arise from factory farm dairy and all that, this commercial did a super effective job of bestowing the virtues of milk. It connects to any kid that was scrawny and gangly and puts this idea into your head about how you can turn this around using their product. 
The kid in this commercial is trying to woo a supermodel, if you remember this. But by drinking milk, he starts to physically mature. This is as effective as marketing gets, as it does the important things marketing has to do. It reveals a pain point and how to overcome that pain by using this specific product. It's weird to think of milk as a product, but this was the approach that pushed it into one of the best TV commercials of the 80s. It shows how important the message is and that with a strong premise, no flash or excess or anything like that is needed. The product can stand on its own. Okay, number nine. Let's check out what's on the box. Time for Wacky Wild Style. The wackiest thing in a box. Today's part, boxing. Wacky Wild. Come on, Wacky Wild. Wacky Wild. Wild. Style. And now to get serious. Seriously wacky. It came from inside the box. Wacky Wild. Kool-Aid Style. Kool-Aid Cooler's Juice The box that's totally wacky. The six-foot-tall glass jar of cherry Kool-Aid known as the Kool-Aid Man actually goes back to the 1950s when he was known as Pitcher Man. He evolved to the Kool-Aid Man we all now know and love in 1974 because of advertising agency Great Advertising. He also started using his familiar catchphrase, oh yeah. But it's in the 1980s when he achieved pop culture status. This started in 1979 when a simple effect was used that was actually very significant in the history of advertising to children. His mouth moved. Up to then, there were regulations on how advertising to children could be conducted, as cartoons were seen as confusing children when used in a commercial. Young children cannot differentiate between a cartoon show and a commercial, and using cartoons was seen as exploitative marketing. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan lifted all these regulations, and I've done tons of shows all about this if you want to go back. But basically, going into the 80s, advertisers now had free reign on promoting to children. And this is when they could use more cartoons. And this is when things like the Kool-Aid Man really took off and serials would use cartoons. And he was one of the notable figures of the 80s that sort of represented this combination of cartoon and commercial. Okay, next, one of the biggest marketing disasters of all time, but a significant part of the 1980s. Is this a private party or can any store crash? So, no, 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 it is irresistible. But this is more modern than <laughs> You said the P word. <laughs> so, what I want to know is if you're drinking Coke, who's drinking Pepsi? If you can't beat it, that's the way. Coke. <laughs> If you've spent any time around this podcast, you know my fascination with the disaster that was New Coke. And again, I have an entire episode devoted all about that if you want to go back and check that out. But New Coke was seen as the attempt to rejuvenate the now floundering cola company in 1985 and make it seem like the hip new cola that Pepsi had become. This meant turning to the creation of Max Headroom, who was being used to help popularize the new MTV. New wave music was big in the 80s. There was that own movement going on as well. And MTV and Max Headroom captured this perfectly. And I have a whole episode all about the history of Max Headroom and really interesting actually with how deep it goes. Coke thought this perfectly combined things. 
this whole new product, this new cool hip character. And this was their way to make sure their new drink was seen in this hip new light, but it didn't work. It's mainly because they took away the original Coca-Cola and everyone went nuts. The backlash to new Coke was so big that they abandoned it just a few months later and brought back the original formula as Coca-Cola Classic. This was a big commercial in the 80s, and it was creating a new movement through the changing landscape of the culture. And that's why I, deserve, I think it deserves a place on this list, because it's you know starting to cross over now. This MTV generation is now starting to infiltrate marketing and commercials, and it's seen how important you know the teenage audience is. It always has been, but now it's getting even more important. And this commercial is a good representation of that sort of combination of, you know, that modern marketing approaches using hip new alternative, um, you know, characters and movements, but, you know, still marketing a traditional product. Okay, this next one, no introduction needed here. The jingle that has probably been in your head every day since it first aired in 1984. Folgers has been using this slogan for years now, and it remains one of the most significant commercials of the 80s as it drives home the message about how great this instant coffee is with, again, one of the best jingles ever written. This jingle was sung by Leslie Pearl. She was a singer-songwriter who had a few songs on the charts. She then went into songwriting and then into jingle writing. The best part of Waking Up, that's the actual jingle name, would be her biggest hit, running for 25 years, making it one of the longest-used jingles in commercial history. Okay, let's check out number six. Mr. Turtle, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? I never made it without biting. Ask Mr. Owl. Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Let's find out. One, two, three, three. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. Tootsie Pops is one of the most iconic commercials of the 80s and of all time. This incredibly simple ad had a catchphrase that is, again, part of the culture and especially for kids growing up in the 80s. The ad you just listened to is from 1982, and it made us wonder for the rest of our lives how many licks it actually takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. As a kid, this made me want one more than anything, not necessarily to find out the exact number, but to at least be in the mix and part of the conversation. The original commercial goes back to the 70s, and it featured a turtle, a cow, and a fox alongside the owl. That original commercial was 60 seconds long, and it was considered too long, and then was edited down to the 30-second and then 15-second spots that just featured the owl to become the commercial you know from the 80s and to become one of the best ever. 
Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's check out an iconic one at number five. This is just a reminder of what Coke was up against in the 80s. And this is definitely the longest commercial featured here. So it's hard to believe now, but there was a time when Michael Jackson was the coolest thing imaginable. I know it's hard to look back and anything that's problematic regarding him. But again, looking back into the 80s, it didn't get bigger than Michael Jackson. Pepsi was able to capitalize on the unbelievable popularity of them, which was instrumental in rebranding themselves as the Cool Cola, which Coke would have to try to oppose. The commercial you just listened to is from 1984, and it blew the mind of a very young me. It was two years off the release of Thriller, and Michael Jackson was already pretty mythical. Pepsi is also responsible for almost killing him in an ad that featured a concert and pyrotechnics that actually lit Michael Jackson on fire. The Pepsi Generation ad is also notable as it features a young Alfonso Ribeiro, a.k.a. Carlton Banks, from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Let's look at number four and possibly my absolute favorite commercial from the 1980s. When I played football, they called me a troublemaker. But really, I'm just a nice guy who likes to watch a game with a Miller Lite. I see you're drinking light, too. Yeah, it tastes great. I agree. But he drinks it because it's less filling. It tastes great. Did you hear that? It's less filling. Pretty strong words. It tastes great. Less filling. Tastes great! Less filling! Tastes great! There's no argument. There's only one light beer. Miller Lite. Is that a light beer you're drinking? Yeah, it tastes great. I agree, but that's not what he said. 
If you didn't grow up in the 80s, this commercial was like the what's up of its day. It was a classic call and response that you would hear everywhere from bars to sporting events, schools. I remember repeating this on the playground of not having any idea what I was talking about with taste great, less filling. It's one of the most memorable catchphrases of all time and is considered one of the best advertising campaigns in history by Advertising Age magazine. McCann Erickson, if you know your Mad Men and have watched that show, they created this commercial. And they are the king of all advertising agencies, of course, after Sterling Cooper Draper Price. This ad made use of top sports celebrities such as Bob Euchre and John Madden. And the general premise was the disagreement over the catchphrase that would usually result in some sort of brawl. And as this catchphrase and slogan caught on, there were multiple variations of this commercial in different situations and um, scenarios and different guest spots and stars and everything like that. But the one you listen to is, you know, one of the classics to remember. Okay, we talked about the Folgers um, jingle. This one might top it. A double pleasure's waiting for you. A double pleasure for double mint gum. A double great feeling. To many people, the Wrigley's Double Mint Gum ad is the best commercial of the 80s. But there's a couple I think are a bit better. We'll get to that in a second. This ad, however, created a great vibe behind the product. Something as simple as chewing gum was now seen as an accessory and almost a way to connect with others. The commercial used lighthearted music and a very airy approach, making it feel more like an episode of Three's Company than a corporate message. Wrigley had been promoting the idea of the gum having a double the flavor concept since 1914. They'd also been using twins in their marketing since the 1930s. But the Double Mint commercial in 1985 created a great snapshot of the 80s. It had a sense of the yuppie movement that was happening and featured some nice tie-dyed hair and pastel colors. It also featured another great jingle that seemed, again, more like a song that you'd hear on the radio as opposed to just pushing a slogan. Almost, again, like the Folgers song. Like, you could almost hear that on adult contemporary radio. Okay, we're now into the top two. Here's number two. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. There are catchphrases and slogans that are memorable, and then there are the ones that infiltrate the collective consciousness and take on a larger life. The phrase, where's the beef, entered the public's lexicon in the 1980s and became synonymous with questioning the substance of anything. This ad is pretty unique, as it was made in contrast to ads like Wrigley's Double Mint Gum. Those ads were all bright and shiny, and the approach there was to change the appearance of how an ad looked. Like I said, it was, you know, trying to create like a three's company sort of look to it. 
This all came down to a guy named Joe Siedlmeyer. He would cast regular people, not models, and made the entire commercial less glossy. And that's what he did with the Where's the Beef commercial. In this case, the commercial cast 82-year-old Clara Peller, who was questioning why other fast food companies, obviously McDonald's they're targeting, why were they scrimping so much when it came to the beef content of their hamburgers? This commercial from the 80s was only supposed to run a short while, but its popularity kept it on TV for 10 weeks. And the explosion in popularity of the phrase, where's the beef, cannot be understated. So much, I've done an entire episode all about this. If Again, you want to go back and check that out. It would be copied throughout society in late night talk shows and even into the 1984 presidential election. During the primaries of the spring of 1984, Democratic candidate and former vice president Walter Mondale used the phrase to sum up that the program policies put forward by opponent Gary Hart were lacking in substance. This was at the height of the popularity of the commercial, so it was a great way to tap into the public consciousness by using a topical phrase that was also a pretty cutting jab. Again, amazing story with that whole thing if you want to go back and check it out. Even just the story of Clara Peller herself is pretty astonishing. And again, more that movement by Joe Siedlmeyer into this era of commercials that didn't look right. And they were, you know, people would be walking in weird stunted motions and he used different sort of frame rates. And again, the regular looking people and not the glossy models. This made them stood out in a sea of glossiness. Okay, number one, and you can probably see what's coming, but here we go. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives. We have created for the first time in all history a garden of pure ideology where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a contradictory is more powerful a weapon than any fleet or army on earth. We are one people, with one will, one resolve, one cause. Our enemies shall talk themselves to death, and we bewail them with their own confusion. We shall prevail. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. One of the greatest TV commercials of not just the 80s, but in all of marketing history. The Apple 1984 commercial changed the way marketing would be done while also forever changing the Super Bowl. Apple was about to launch its new Macintosh computer, and Steve Jobs was adamant that they needed to launch with a splash. Apple was trying to create a revolution with what computers could be, and they wanted to get away from the mechanical drone-like existence of companies like IBM. Steve Jobs' goal was to create a thunderclap and show how they were a bunch of rebels at Apple. He wanted to be a pirate in the world of computers. That meant bringing an advertising agency, Chiat Day, who then recruited Ridley Scott to create a dystopian future similar to Blade Runner. They wanted to get this in front of as many eyes as possible and thought that the Super Bowl would be the perfect time to launch it. Super Bowl advertising was not what it is today in 1984, so regular run-of-the-mill ads were usually shown. In Super Bowl 18, the Oakland Raiders had just gone up 28-9 after scoring a touchdown early in the third quarter. 
The viewing audience, expecting a replay, had their screens go black. Then some ominous music started playing to reveal an army of marching drones to the ad you've no doubt seen countless times. This commercial caused a cultural earthquake, and after the game, more people were talking about the commercial than the game itself. News stations later that night were carrying stories all about the ad. This thing was going viral before going viral was even a thing. The 1984 commercial changed the way commercials were made. It began a movement that made the Super Bowl an advertising mecca and helped launch Apple and the Macintosh into the stratosphere. And for all those reasons, culturally, marketing-wise, economically, it's, I think it's worthy, obviously, of the number one choice of the best commercial of the 1980s. And also, I've got a blog episode all about this thing that goes way more in depth. Uh, so podcast, if you want to go back and check that out. So we'll start winding it down here. It's hard to narrow down a top 10, but I think I covered all those bases with the combination of commercials that are entertaining, groundbreaking, and above all, memorable. Some of them became so big, they surpassed the goal of selling the product and became significant cultural moments. I think that's the goal of any advertising agency. You dream of having that ad that causes a cultural shift and embeds itself into the fabric of society. It's much harder today to do that. But in the 80s, creating an advertising sensation was more possible. I think that's why you saw so many, so many iconic ads as agencies were firing on all cylinders to break through with an ad that be, could become water cooler talk. With only the three networks, like we mentioned at the start, there was more of a chance of landing one of these and you know creating that viral hit that you know everyone today tries to do. It's funny that when we were kids, we would avoid commercials like The Plague, but today I always find myself watching old 80s commercials on YouTube to return back to that golden age. So let's finish it there. I love marketing and the history of marketing, and I especially like it when it sort of combines with pop culture and creates all these significant moments that, you know, we remember to this day. So as I finish, I just want to give a reminder, if you're in a position to do so, about supporting shows like this through patreon.com. So that's where, just for like a few bucks a month, you can support you know small independent shows like this, but at the same time get access to different audio rewards, including the Everything 80s Movie Club. That's at the Boba Fett level. And there will be a new movie review coming up probably sometime this week. And here's a hint. It was mentioned in this episode. That's all I'll say. So if you want to learn more and see what this is all about, you can go to patreon.com slash 80s. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80s. That'll be, there'll be a link to that in the description for the show where the show notes are. Also put a link to the blog post that has all these commercials in it. So you can go back and look them up if you haven't already looked them up on YouTube, but that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spending the time with me here today. I know there's millions of shows out there now. So the fact you're listening to this one means a lot, but I will be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.